Hi, this is Glenn Wexler, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. History in Five Songs with host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Welcome back. Martin Popoff here with another episode of History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by the good people at Pantheon Podcast. We're pleased, as always, to be part of this vast and always expanding Pantheon Podcast Network. We're available on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. All right. So this is episode 152. I'm calling this No Bottom End. I've, uh, I essentially, you know, pushed a couple of uh, other ideas to the side. This one just kind of came to me. I thought it'd be kind of a good idea. Um, essentially what we're going to talk about is albums that, uh, have no bottom end that are bass challenged. And I'm going to leave out some of the obvious ones. I mean, these are, these are kind of obvious as well, but, uh, I'm also going to hopefully add a little bit to the conversation and say, you know, what kind of good, uh, the idea of having no bottom end kind of brings to some of these records. Uh, but just to put uh, put aside a couple of things that I'm not going to talk about here and direct you elsewhere sort of thing. Um, by the way, I've got some good honorable mentions and I got some good input uh, from a couple of good buddies who have uh, have come up with some good ideas and concepts. Wise Music Swamis, Mick Phelan and Neil Miller uh, helped me out a little bit with this episode and I'm going to quote from them a little bit at the end when we get to the honorable mentions. So when I was looking into doing this one, I decided, okay, I'm not going to talk about Injustice for All because we do have an episode here elsewhere on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff all about Metallica's productions and um, you know I discussed that a little bit there. I'm also not going to talk about Tom Werman here because we have a complete Tom Werman as producer episode also uh, of this podcast and we talked about uh, the base challengedness of uh, I think it's most egregious with Ted Nugent. It's also a little bit egregious with Cheap Trick. Uh, I was very tempted to include Dawkin Tooth and Nail. Um, I have a one of those, I think it's $1.99 because it's 13,000 words uh, over at Zunior.com. I have all these ebooks that are only available as ebooks, these things on one album at a time. There's like 50 of them for 99 cents, but there's a there's a big long tooth and nail one there. Um that goes into a little bit of the debacle that that album is as well. That's one I kind of wanted to talk about here, but I decided, ah, we've got the Tom Worman episode. Go listen to it there. I also didn't want to talk about Van Halen in any way because I have a complete episode on the Brown Sound with Van Halen. Um, you know, my favorite records are theirs that have a real Brown Sound to them. Uh, the most Brown Sound to me is... 5150, but OU812 is very brown sound as well. And part of uh, a certain aspect of the brown sound is, is lacking bottom end. So those ones go, go elsewhere for those ones. Um, but yeah, they're, they're kind of interesting as well in this department. So without further ado, let's go into our first example here. Take a listen to this. This is Iggy and the Stooges with Death Trip. Yeah. 
Okay. So I actually also included this uh, this band and a little bit of this discussion in a in another episode that is somewhat related to this. Uh, this is episode 152, No Bottom End, of course, but we have an episode called Recording Badly on Purpose. That's an interesting episode where it's all about the various aspects of trying to have a trashy sound and why you would want to do that. But, you know, this one specifically is on No Bottom End. Um, and... There's there's a whole story behind why this is this way, but before I before I get there, I just want to mention that again. So what does it do for? Well, let, no, let's leave that for later. Let's talk a little bit about this. So so essentially, what happened was um, this is somewhat of a self produced album with an engineer. Iggy Pop is in there. He's kind of screwing it up. There's a there's a lot of conflicting stuff about how this all works, but you know there was there was originally the idea that he put like all the vocals to one side and and the and the tracks in one place and lead guitar in another and then so he mixed it nobody was happy with the whole whole thing so david bowie was brought in they both got main man management at, at this point uh, he was brought in to try rescue it and remix it and he said i i can't do anything with this you've really botched the recording of it you just didn't use enough tracks to be able to mix this properly so he does a couple of little things in it and and tries to tries to window dress it a little bit. No one was particularly happy with the sound, but you know, I again over at uh, over at Zunior, I've got a I've got a long story of this album and actually all three of them uh combined I think for 2.99 or something. But uh anyways, um I thought a, a kind of interesting part of this is um I had interviewed both Scott and Ron Ashton, the brothers, sadly, they're both gone. But Scott said the basic tracks, the raw tracks are very good and the band sounded good. And I thought the lyrics were great. The singing was good. And Bowie's first time attempt at wanting to be a producer did just one of the worst mixes on an album I had ever heard. Now, remember, um, you know, Bowie's not producing this. Um, it, it literally says, where's my copy here of this thing? I always forget this. Uh, but yeah, it basically says produced by Iggy Pop for Main Man, a Main Man production mixed by David Bowie and Iggy Pop. And that's because they both took a run at mixing it. So Iggy first and then Bowie and Iggy together, uh, you know, uh, collaborated kind of on, on a remix of it. But Bowie is a big name and that's why they did this. But I, I like this part that Scott told me, um, which is not exactly common knowledge. But he goes, um, I was very disappointed when I heard that album when it was released and I didn't even listen to it. Didn't pay much attention to it unless I had to play one of the songs because I really didn't like it that much anymore. But they are good songs. There was a problem with the drums. Somebody didn't turn on one of the drum mics or it was the rack toms that were not mic'd and I think he may have forgotten to turn the cymbal mics on and stuff like that so when it came to came to remix years later and try to make it sound better so this is like years later they also worked on remixing and it does sound better I just wanted to mention something here as well you're going to hear these songs uh these clips as usual as we do on this podcast but um you know it's going to sound better it's going to sound bassier because there have been so many remixes along the way of many of these records and plus you know uh, part of being bass challenged is uh, I believe me I mean, these records were definitely bass challenged in their original vinyl form played on a normal stereo. But you're hearing this now through Spotify um, and YouTube and various kinds of speakers or directly into your ears. Uh, garbage in, garbage out, right? I mean, a lot of what makes these things uh, sound better or worse uh, is based on the on the stereo you're listening to it on. And also, um, you know, usually with a bad sounding album, if you just crank the bass, um, on your stereo, of course, that's going to bring back the bass or give you, give you a lot of bass. But the point is, is if you left all your settings where you normally leave your settings, the, most of these albums, at least in the original form, are not going to sound uh, particularly bassy. So that said, 
I thought that was kind of interesting. And, you know, James Williamson, I interviewed him for this thing that I wrote as well. This is also a really long one. It's not as long as the Dawkins one. But, um, you know, he says, uh, as for the story, uh, so so James told me, we came up with a mix that we liked when we came out of the studio. We came, gave that to Main Man, the management group. They listened to it. They didn't like it. But they never really did like our stuff anyways. I don't think they understood it. And so they thought, well, maybe David Bowie can salvage this. And he went in. And, well, Jim and I went in the studio with him, too, and took a crack at it and came up with a fairly arty stylized approach on it. James it's funny in this in this interview that I I did for this with him he doesn't really cotton on to the fact that it doesn't sound great he's he's more concerned with and this is kind of smart of him in a way uh, because this is a legendary legendary album so let's get into uh you know a little bit of why um it's kind of cool that it sounds like this. So if this would have sound perfect sound sounded perfect like say uh you know another thing semi of this over at the time like let's say Aerosmith get your wings 1974 this this album's coming out in 73 uh on CBS but say if it would have sounded like that or Montrose Montrose or one of the Amboy Dukes albums from 73 74 call the wild tooth fang and claw blah 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 um you know maybe Iggy would have been uh, seen as just not a great heavy metal band instead of uh, this idea of being a real f- uh, forerunner of punk rock um, because this because this gives it a really punky, trashy, um, you know, gritty, decadent vibe, you know, with that album cover with Iggy looking all freaky, you know, and the monster writing and it being called Raw Power, which is kind of what it is. So, you know, you hear on this Death Trip song and and the whole album, it really is kind of a cooler album in a way because it sounds so so trashy and uh, and cheap and and New York vibe. So, you know, it is it is probably more of a legendary album because it sounds bad. So, put it that way. Um so, yeah, let's see. Uh, what else can I just mention here quickly? Um, in Bowie's defense, with respect to the recording audio, this is me writing, David had said that Iggy had used uh, a mere three tracks out of an available 24 to put uh, the record together, the band on one track. Um, actually, this uh, this might be a little bit um, what we had at Wikipedia because there is uh, there is a little bit of a later when the remix happens, uh, a, a, a refutation of uh, of it being on very, very few tracks kind of thing. So, yeah, so there's a lot of problems with it. But I mean, it 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 sounded definitely the worst version of it. There was a whole uh, bootleg thing that went around called, uh, called Rough Power. So even even long time ago, you could get the original Iggy Pop mixes. And essentially, there's no there's no real uh, one is better than the other. The actual official David Bowie you know vinyl album from 1973, his mix versus the Rough Power album, um, they just sounded more or less different. Um, you know, and there were there were some neat kind of sound effecty things done here and there, but essentially, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty trashy album. All right, let's move on. Uh, take a listen to this. This is our second track here on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff, episode one fifty two, No Bottom End. This is Judas Priest with Sinner. All right. 
Sin After Sin, April 8th, 1977. This is Roger Glover producing and Simon Phillips playing drums. So the, so the key here, I think, is that those two guys in the in their headspace at the time and and the studio and everything uh, combined and these songs and the, and the swiftness of these songs and the technicality conspired to make Sin After Sin a notoriously thin-sounding album. Um, but again, I think, uh, you know, I, I want to say that... Um, had it been another way, I mean, had it been another way, had it been a great sounding album, uh, perhaps it would be maybe more of a legendary album. But I think because it sounds like this, it it lends it lends this idea of um, of it being uncommon un, and austere and scientific and and really technical. Uh, and again, a lot of that comes from Simon Phillips. So there's there's um, there's double bass drumming on here. This is an album that kind of pioneers a double bass drumming. And Simon Phillips is coming from. I mean, he's super young at this at this point. I think he's like 18 or something. But he's coming at it sort of from a jazz feel as well. So so that influences things. And you're not thinking the same way of of like a big huge bottom groove in Simon. So, so it has to do a little bit of, um, who Simon is mixed with Roger. Now, Roger, Roger isn't particularly known for super thin sounding albums. I mean, he didn't sound like this with Nazareth. So it's not really down to this being the Roger Glover sound, but I, I do, I do kind of like that, you know, years and years later, even though everybody kind of complains about it a little bit, that it does sound like this. And, and people do consider it one of their favorite priest albums. Now, the other interesting thing is that Sad Wings has enough bottom end. Even Rockarola has enough bottom end. So, so albums made in complete poverty sound kind of better all around than Sin After Sin. But, you know, Sin After Sin, uh, the rest of it, besides the no bottom end, uh, is is pretty interesting and professional sounding. A lot of good mids, a lot of good separation between all the, you know, the various drums that Simon is hitting and cymbals. And uh, the vocals sound good in the mix, the guitar sound, uh, you know, not exactly powerful, but but electric. And this is kind of one of the things that you get out of a a mix that is low on bottom end is that you get um, um, the guitars being more pronounced. And and a lot of guys like a Tom Worman say that that's actually uh, kind of intentional. It's it's to it's to play up the guitars um, because you know sensibly you are paying playing down the bass and you're playing down the bass drum. So I think that's kind of cool. And uh, the other very interesting thing is. Um, Judas Priest did another album that sounded kind of just as thin in stained class with a whole different producer, Dennis McKay. Um, so they have two in a row that, that are like this. So, so it, it means they must've liked it or there's some intention there. Now, granted, when they get to my favorite Priest album, the bottom end is more or less back killing machine slash hell bent for leather. And then, you know, Tom Allen is a whole different thing that we don't need to talk about, but yes, this is definitely one of those albums, uh, known for the low bottom end. And I always, you know, one of the things I always, uh, you know, it's kind of a subconscious thing, but this one really comes to mind all the time as does justice. And both of them are these kind of gray album covers with illustration, which are kind of interesting. Um, anyways, um, all right, so this episode of History in Five Songs, as with uh, as with many previous to this, um, is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you 
you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And special offer to History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash five songs. That's betterhelp.com slash five songs. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. And I want to add i do have this testimonial from a listener who says i want to once again give you feedback on your sponsor better help the therapy i've received the last month has been better than any i've encountered over the last 30 years you have a quality life-changing sponsor beautiful okay um on to our third selection take a listen to this this is thin lizzy with warrior Okay, so I wanted to include Jailbreak because, um, yeah, it's funny. On on um, Sea of Tranquility with Pete Pardo, we recently did our favorite bands of all time. And, and I was surprised as anybody to realize Thin Lizzy was my favorite band of all time. Um, but the funny thing about this album is uh, I wanted to include it because... It is Thin Lizzy's only album that ever went gold. It's got the two biggest songs Thin Lizzy ever had, maybe three, in The Boys Are Back in Town, Jailbreak, and Cowboy Song. Um, but it is notoriously thin-sounding, and it is uh, it is down my list of favorite Thin Lizzy albums for that reason, so I wanted to include it. March 26, 1976, John Alcock produces it, but the funny thing is... Johnny the Fox is the next album, and it has a very, fairly beefy bottom end, and John Alcock also produces that. Um, and also funny is the album before it, Fighting, is more or less self-produced. It's it's produced by Phil, and it has a beefy bottom end. Um, and later on, they never had this thin bottom end problem, I wouldn't say. Um, you know, the, the productions are here and there, a little bit better, a little bit worse, whatever. Um you know, my favorite Thin Lizzy album is Renegade, and people are down on the production of that, but it's not because it has no bottom end. I think people think it's a little bit too analog and puffy and beefy and not and not enough sort of guitar-y and heavy metal enough as a production. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so this this definitely has a lack of bottom end. Um, it really reminds me another Grey album with illustration, isn't it? Like Sin After Sin and uh, and Justice, funny enough. Um, but um, And also funny enough, I think um, you really get a sense out of Brian Downey of uh, the finesse and the light touch he has on the drums, which reminds you a little bit of what Simon Phillips does on uh on sin after sin so so i think that's kind of cool it it really it really gives you a uh a, a clear uh clear alley to uh to hear what the drums are doing but definitely there's not a lot of bass and which is kind of ironic because the leader of the band is a bass player right um but yeah only only gold record for these guys now this brings up another thing um you know people often defend these albums that don't have a lot of bottom end by saying they sound good on radio 
Um, so, you know, this was their biggest album. So maybe that's kind of the thing. I mean, radio is a very mid rangey kind of thing. I never quite understood. It has a lot to do with compression and stuff like that, which we're actually going to hear about, uh, in a little bit when we get to track five, but, uh, let's move on. Take a listen to this. This is track four. This is yes with release release. Okay, so this is from Tormato. Um, this is, yes, of course, a September 22nd, 78. Um, along the way, there, there was a lot of bickering going on between Rick Wakeman and Steve Howe, and also they lost Eddie Offord along the way. So this becomes a self-produced album. People are not crazy about the album cover, but people are definitely not crazy about the sound of this record. This is kind of interesting. Looking back along the way, I think this is from Wiki. Wait, Wakeman admitted he uh, uh, he got a 60% right and 40% wrong, wished he played things differently. One of Howe's criticisms, Steve Howe, uh, was that the Polymoog and Birotron did not complement his guitar sound and noted they often cancel each other out. That's another funny thing about mixes and uh, and frequencies um, that you hear rock stars talk about. Um, you know, I've, I've heard this many times in, in interviews that I've done with these guys is that certain sounds will cancel each other out and of course the more tracks you add the more uh, you are just sensibly logically mathematically crowding somebody out um this is kind of interesting. In 2013, engineer and producer Brian Kehue, uh, who had worked on the uh, remastering of other Yes albums, explained that the album sounds thin, flat, and terrible. He said that Offord usually incorporated Dolby A, a type of Dolby noise reduction system in his production work, but upon examination of the original tapes, Kehue could not locate any sign that Dolby A was used. Like I say, they lost Offord along the way. And applying Dolby A to the tapes, Kehue said everything except for the overdubs sounded amazing. Kehue then... Uh, realized that the engineers who replaced Offord may not have known that the Dolby reduction had in fact um, been used. Um, so kind of interesting. Um, but yes, it definitely is a thin sounding record. Now, what does it do for this record? You know, oddly enough, what it does for this record is when people spoke positively about Tormato, they said that it sounded bright and fresh and a little bit more of the times, um, a little bit more uh, to compete in the, in the, you know, the scrappy rock and roll punk rock uh, end of the world. So maybe yes was updating a little and sounding a little more vital and energetic. I mean, I picked kind of the heaviest, fastest song on it here with release release, but there, there is something to be said for that. But I think more people are being psyched out by the fact that there's, there's friggin' nine songs on the record, which is different for a yes record. Right. Um, so it's got a lot of short songs. So I think that uh, is maybe one of the reasons more so that people said they were getting with the times. But it is funny that that this sort of hectic, um, frantic, uh, energetic uh, sound uh, kind of has a has a positive silver lining to it as well, even though it was mostly seen as a negative. Yes, really did not have a problem with uh, with no bottom end. Although you know Steve Howe played a very wiry guitar uh, feel, and and it's not that they were um, they were super uh, attentive to bottom end it just usually showed up with eddie offered i would say um but yeah they never really had a problem with it and i think this is probably their their um you know their worst sounding classic era album and later on you know things were really paid attention to and 
and they they had no problems with uh with bad sound later drama actually is 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 one of my favorite you know early days quote unquote uh sounding albums uh from this band all right let's move on to track five this is rush with lock and key Okay, so that's from Hold Your Fire, September 8th, 1987. Here, here's a very interesting quote. So this is this is uh, produced by Peter Collins, who comes from an English tradition. Uh, he also did the previous album, Power Windows. He's back for Counterparts, which is not a very Peter Collins sounding album. And frankly, you know, Rush had a very thin lack of bottom, bottom end on the two Rupert Hine albums as well, uh, Presto and Roll the Bones. So they must have liked this because really four albums in a row, they kind of had this sound and i think it's kind of interesting that caress of steel another grayish album with illustration um <laughs> uh, is also a little bit low on um low on bottom end it's uh it well that one reminds me of jailbreak more than anything i mean that that to me you know uh, 75 albums right uh, 70 or 76 into 75 um but uh i find uh those and sin after sin frankly uh those three albums together have a similar sort of sound uh to me with with kind of lacking bottom end but but a kind of meticulousness of everything else which which makes it sound uh sound okay but so here's peter collins he says I found when I came to America that the American sense of bottom end is very different uh, to the English perception of bottom end. The English perception is much tighter, doesn't go as low, not as warm or as fat. It's crunchier. It approaches the mid-range. I think that's pretty much always been the case in British pop and rock music, a different sensibility to bottom end. I've noticed time and time again that British records seem very light to me at the bottom. It's a sweeping generalization, but Americans notice it as well. And that's why they have so much... British stuff remastered in America. One reason for the British uh, uh, percep perception of bottom end may have been Radio 1 because they have so much compression on Radio 1. If you've got too much bottom end, that compression would make your record sound quieter over the radio when the record hits their compressors. There you go. There's your explanation. I'm going back now because I think Radio 1 is much more hi-fi than it used to be. In my day, in the early 80s, Radio 1 was everything. If you weren't on Radio 1, you could forget it. You can forget it. British stuff traditionally has always been very heavily compressed. Americans until recently have been a little bit more judicious with the compression. So... The idea here is that, okay, so that's Peter Collins and that's what he brings to the situation. Plus there's all these synthesizers and Getty's playing wall bass and, and, and Neil's getting into electronic drums. They really want to try to stay fresh. Rush had this preoccupation, uh, you know, slash possible slight insecurity with staying fresh and modern and trying to be with it and being excited about new music. So that is uh, a little bit also why these records sound that way. So they obviously liked it on Power Windows because they went and did it on Hold Your Fire. And then even without Peter Collins, they went and did it again on the next two records. Uh, so they have a they have a long run of these records that have this, uh, this very thin bottom end sound. So yeah, this is them just being enamored with uh, youthful music 
music and trying to stay uh, youthful kind of thing. So there you go. Um, boy, this is this again is getting to be a little bit of a, a long episode, but uh, but yeah, there there's your various. Uh, well, let, let's just say this also with Rush. Um, you know, if they hadn't have done this, it would give us less to talk about. A lot of people love these records and love that they did this and they were creatively fearless in going to these different places. Uh, in well, first of all, in uh, in ending the re- relationship with Terry and saying we we need fresh blood, we need to work with other producers. Um, so they have many different sounding records along the way, and it and it gives a variety to the catalog years and years later. I mean, maybe that's the the silver lining way of looking at it. Um, you know, I I personally am not crazy about this, uh, this these these records and the sound of these records, and uh, you know, I I think um these these become somewhat dated over time, but again, um. You know they 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 are what they are. Um, they are of the time, and if we didn't have them, we'd have Rush records. They 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 kind of sound just like other records. I wonder if they if I, I've always kind of fantasized like like what if you had a whole new arrangement, re-recording, reproduction of of the of many of these songs from this era, and and would would they would they sound like like closer to a hard rock record? Kind of an interesting thing. Um, it would be neat to see these albums redone in a in, with a hard rock tinfoil hat on, right? Uh, anyways, there you go. The last thing I wanted to mention here is that, um, you know, this bring, maybe I should leave this for later, but, um, you know, black metal is, uh, is certainly, uh, known for this. Um, it's one of the aesthetics of black metal is taking away that bottom end and having that tick, 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 you know, that, that super OTT feel where everything's moved up. And even the vocals are less of an aggressive male death metal vocal into that crow's car sort of vocal thing, almost like as a metaphor for kicking off the bottom end. But let's leave that for later because this episode's getting a little long. Uh, Mick Phelan mentions uh, a couple other ones. Left Hand Path by Entombed. He says Entombed's trademark. Uh, buzzsaw uh, guitar is searing, no doubt, distinctive and gorgeous, but it's all top end to my ears uh, in that it's coupled with drum parts, although played beautifully, that sound brittle, akin to a biscuit tin being whacked. Welcome to Helly Mansions by Venom. This is a blueprint for black metal, isn't it? Unpleasant, clangy, demo-sounding guitars. It all gets a bit muddled. Uh, but to my end, it still has some bottom end. The attitude and sheer Venom uh, save it, of course. Witching Hour is amazing, but even to my 14-year-old self knew it needed mixing and wonder why the bass chrono sounds like whimpering farts. Live fast, die fast by Wolfsbane. Um, yeah, interesting. I think Rick Rubin does some things. I think the first Danzig and maybe this Wolfsbane are kind of lacking in bottom end. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Sport of Maiden. Uh, ah, let's not get into it. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, I think he mentioned physical graffiti. Zeppelin is a funny one, but I think I've talked a lot about Led Zeppelin. I love physical graffiti to death, but it's definitely lacking in bottom end. He also mentions Gary Moore's albums. I mean, Peter Collins produced for Gary Moore as well. Um, Led Zeppelin 1, he mentions. I didn't think it it was lacking too much bottom end for an album from early 1969, but he says, did they ever let Jonesy get his day in the sun as a basis? A classic album, but babe, I'm going to leave you as trebly mess. It's all um, metallic top end, sharp in terms of that treble uh, sound. It ascends, ascends, ascends into a clattering guitar sound. That's a Telecaster Strat, ain't it? The depth found on 3, Since I've Been Loving You, Better Pretty So 3 is also an album super lacking in bottom end. Uh, you listen to Immigrant Song, which is ostensibly a heavy metal song, right um let's see uh, neil miller mentions although the albums below sound decent or great uh, uh or great overall i find them all to have a distinct lack of bottom end in some cases practically practically wafer thin 
e.g. Journey's Frontiers. Some of them have been vastly improved in remasters or remixes. We've talked about that. XTC Skylarking, a col- uh, correcting polarity version, and uh, Tull's recent uh, A remix by Stephen Wilson. Thus, these all refer to the original issues. Some of them do have more bottom end on vinyl versus CD, e.g. Genesis and Sin After Sin. So I guess the format may play a role in some cases as well. Pretty interesting. Um, just a few that he mentions. Dio Sacred Heart, amen to that. Um, Genesis Genesis, uh, yeah, very electronic drummy on that one. Journey Frontiers, Jethro Tull, A and Under Wraps, Donald Fagan, The Nightfly, David Bowie, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Yeah, a lot of lot of early David Bowie as lacking in, in bottom end. Heart, Heart, Kiss, Crazy Nights, definitely uh, one of the one of the bad sounding Kiss albums. A lot, lot of them lack bottom end, right from the eighties. Uh, not Asylum, but definitely uh, Animalized lacks bottom end. Um, that's a whole nother thing, uh, the, the whole Eric Carr and drum situation. Uh, Bluish Occult, he mentions Mirrors, and to me, that's the only one that has bottom end. I mean, to me, Spectres uh, and Agents uh, lack a lot of bottom end, as do the first three, the black and white period ones. And we did a whole episode on Martin Birch. One of his big thing is... Uh, one of big his big things is not emphasizing bottom end, right? He's got poison. Look what the cat dragged in. XTC skylarking flute with Mac Tango in the night. Um, he mentions cheap trick in color. He mentions Opeth, Orchid, and Morning Rise count as black metal. I would suggest if they do, I would suggest although they just have a crappy production overall. Um, so there you go. Um, if you like this episode and want to support future episodes, please go to ko-fi.com uh, slash Martin Popoff. Hit that red support button. Buy me a uh, coffee or a pint. And on that front this week, I would like to thank Bruce Campbell, uh, Simeon Shuvardis, Tim Derling, David Fisher, Ben Guest, William Huber, Peter Kerr, um, go check out his Rock Daydream Nation uh, new YouTube channel. He's actually done quite a few shows. He's had a lot of people on from our uh, uh, Contrarian Patreon family. So this is a, a cool way of seeing uh, that Contrarian's family extended. Um, Augustin Garcia de Paredes, Philip Edward Phyllis, Steve Polari, Mark Priest, and Brian Sager. I started a new website for my illustration work, which you can see at martinpopoff.ca, um, but martinpopoff.com for the books. Uh, the latest one in is the Yes a Visual Biography 2. Just got that in. So that's another one of these big Weimar uh, coffee table books. And I've got the Yes, uh, the first one. Um, that to supply as well so you can you can get both of them uh, weighing it at eight pounds combined um and uh what else artpal.com for a lot of my prints if, if people want to get any of these illustrations as prints or on a mug or on canvas or paper uh so they're all shown at artpal.com as well so uh there you go hope you enjoyed this episode and uh when you play these records uh please remember that uh you're not losing your hearing they just got no bass Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology.